Well, we have been spending this past year focusing on on the Christ, which is probably what we should be doing all the time, not just this year, right? And uh, but specifically, we've looked at the shadow of the Christ in the beginning of the year, and over the past couple months, we've been looking at the life of Christ. And as we've considered the life of Christ, we've focused on his birth, his youth, and then his ministry. And in his ministry, we looked at the preparation of the ministry, the proclamation, power, parables, passion, pattern, promises of the ministry. And then we looked at his entry into Jerusalem, his arrest, that was a few weeks ago, about a month ago, and then his crucifixion. And then two weeks ago, we looked at his resurrection. Today, we want to look at the final installment of this part of focusing on Christ, the life of the life of Christ, by looking at the ascension of Christ, his ascension. And um, that we see very clearly from the book of Acts, chapter 1, but as well from the book of Luke, Luke 24. And so we're going to be looking at those passages predominantly this morning. And, and looking at it, first of all, as Steve read Acts 1 this morning, you'll see that there's two main parts within this reading. And first of all, there is the declaration of Christ, and then there's going to be the departure of Christ, which we'll look at in a moment. And uh, so as we look at this declaration of Christ, if you're looking in Acts 1, hopefully you're there, and in Acts 1 we're told that Christ appeared to his disciples over a period of 40 days. And uh, it's amazing all the little details. I knew that it was over a period of 40 days, and this is going to sound sad, but I I couldn't remember where I'd read it, even though I'd been what? Looking at Acts chapter 1, and so I read it right there, you know. And uh, and I'm looking all throughout Luke and John and everything. I'm like, man, where is it? And I thought, uh, it was right there in front of me the entire time. That's where I read it. And um, But over a period of 40 days. Now, what's exciting about this is between the time of the Feast of First Fruits, which was the first day of the week after Passover, which we know and celebrate as what? Easter or Resurrection Day, okay? So between that day and the, the Feast of Weeks, which is called Pentecost, how many days were there? 50 days, okay? And so this is, Jesus is spending 40 days of that, okay, coming back and presenting himself to multiple other people. And we talked about that with the resurrection, that there were upwards of 600 witnesses of Christ's resurrection. Remember when we talked about that? We talked about in the court of law, if you brought in 600 witnesses who said that they saw something, I mean, it's a slam dunk case, you know? But not so when it comes to Jesus Christ and his resurrection. The world wants to say what? Uh, I don't know. That's still, you know, it's debatable. 600 witnesses who, who had seen him at various times, not just one moment where you might had had a, a moment of group... Uh, uh, Yes, hallucinations or hypnosis, you know, that was going on and, and you had somebody who was able to get everybody to see the same thing at the same time. That happens, okay? But now you have multiple different opportunities that people had seen them. Well, this is really exciting. So here we are at the end of the 40 days. Jesus is with his, his apostles, okay? And um, they're wondering, you know, at the end of this time, is this the time? So we look at down there in verse um, verse 4. Acts 1, it says, In being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit. Okay? Now they want to know, though, verse 6, is this the time, Lord, that you're going to what? Are you going to restore the kingdom? Are you going to come and set up your your throne? We've waited now for 40 days, and if you do any biblical numerology kind of stuff, 40 days is a is a, uh, a critical time. You know, 40 years in the wilderness. Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness. And so they're probably thinking, what? 40 days? Is this, is, is this it, Lord? Are we getting ready to do this now? And Jesus tells him, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons. He gives him a negative, first of all, a negative charge, if you would, in this, this declaration. It's an, a negative command. He says, listen, guys, that's not yours. That's God's to worry about. It's not yours to worry about. And what's really interesting, when he tells them it's not for you, it's not for you to know the times or seasons, he uses two words there in the Greek, which we've talked about in the past. I don't know whether you've been there or not for these words, but it's the word chronos and kairos. Chronos is we have chronometers. And so I've got there's a big chronometer on the back wall, which I ignore most of the time. And uh, But that chronometer that's on the back wall is 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 marking the passing of time but time from the perspective of, of incremental time, the passing of seconds and minutes and hours, right? 
Kairos, on the other hand, talks about time as well, but it talks about it from the perspective of events. And so um, Thanksgiving has a chronological occurrence. Yes, it's going to happen, according to Congress, on the third Thursday. Am I right on this one? Or is the fourth Thursday? The fourth Thursday. I don't even know it. Anyways, it's going to happen on the fourth Thursday of every November. Okay? So as long as there's no, no change in Congress, and as long as there's a fourth Thursday in November, there will be a what? A Thanksgiving. But I guarantee you that normally when you talk about your Thanksgiving um, gatherings, you normally don't talk about the chronological moment of that Thanksgiving. Normally you talk about past Thanksgiving events. Do you remember when we got together with so-and-so at Thanksgiving and Andrew did such-and-such? Okay. Now I'm not talking about a chronological moment which it was, and, 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 but I'm really talking about a what? An event that happened. That's kairos. Make sense? Okay. And so Jesus tells them, he says, listen, it's not for you to know the chronometric moment. It's not for you to know the, the time. And so Jesus, earlier, when he was giving his little teaching on the end times, he says, no man knows the day or the hour. Right? But my father only. Okay? So that's what he's talking about. The day or the hour. He's, no one knows that chronological moment when it's going to occur. But no one knows the event moment when it's going to happen either. He's given us what? Some hints. Like if you read Matthew 24 and Matthew 25, if you read 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, you have some ideas of things that are going on, the wars, the rumors of wars, the pestilence, the famine, stuff like that. But you still, honestly, no one on the face of the earth, and I don't care if you're um, uh, the, an owner of a radio station or whatever, you don't know. You know, you can't, you can't pick that time or the season, because why? Because Jesus said so. <laughs> and if you could, then Jesus would be, a liar. Do you get it? I mean, it's kind of an amazing thing, you know? And so, to, to set a date, to set a time, is just wrong. Now, I have in my brain, because mathematically, so i I got some ideas of when I think it could occur, framework, okay? But honestly, my faith isn't in that. D- does that make sense? I'm not going to set a date and say, oh, Jesus isn't going to come back until da 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 You know, and so therefore I can live however I want to and just make sure that within a month of the time that Jesus is going to come back, I do what? I, I get right with God. You know, too many people try to do that before they die, before the kairos of their death. No, that's the event of their death because they don't know the what? The chronos of their event, <laughs> of their death. You get it? But they think they do. They think, oh, I'll just take care of that beforehand. And people live that way with, with the return of Christ. We don't know. We don't know. And so they're saying, are you going to set up the kingdom? And he says, listen, that's not what you should be concerned about. And the sad thing is, this is almost 2,000 years ago. Isn't that what so many people are concerned about today? They want to know, when's Jesus coming back? In fact, in the end times, we're told to Peter, by Peter that there are going to be a lot of people who are um, scoffers. Because they're going to be saying, so where is this return that you keep talking about? It's kind of like that flood thing you talk about, too, in this creation of the world thing. You know, they're going to scoff creation, they're going to scoff the flood, and they're going to scoff the return of Christ. But we need to have a proper definition and a proper understanding of that, of when he's going to come and set up his kingdom. Now, this is all part of the ascension of Christ. This is Jesus is going to teach them these things before he leaves them, because he wants them to, to have a proper understanding when he leaves them, how they should be living while he is, quote-unquote, gone from presence with them. Okay? So the first thing he says on the negative side is, it's not for you to know the times and the seasons. Well, positively, though, what is it for them to do? Well, it's, to, it's positively speaking, they need, they're supposed to keep busy and to be ready. Well, keep your finger in Acts 1 and go back over to Matthew 24, where we saw, where I mentioned earlier about... Jesus said, no man knows the day or the hour. And down in verse, excuse me, verse 42, and we can read the whole chapter there for context, but we don't have time for that. But at the beginning of verse 42, to keep context here, he says, watch therefore, for you do not know what hour, okay, what moment, your Lord is coming. 
But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour, the chronological measurement of time, the thief would be coming, he would have what? Watched. And so the thief let him know at 3 o'clock in the morning, I'm going to be coming to bust in your house. So the guy went to bed and he set his clock, he set his alarm for 2 o'clock. That's right. So that at 2 o'clock he could wake up, he could get refreshed, he could get make sure his shotgun was loaded, he could be sitting at the door. So when the, when the thief came in, he could blow him away. He could protect his home. Well, he says, you know, thieves don't operate that way. Neither do I operate that way on my return. I'm not giving you that time. He says, but if, if the master of the house would have known what hour the thief was coming, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be what? Be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. Who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his master has made ruler over his household to give them food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. Listen, your master, if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, your master has given you a task. Yes? You have a calling. I... You may say, well, no, I'm not, I, I haven't had, yes, you do have a calling. And we're going to talk about that calling more today, but honestly, you each have a calling. We know that Jesus said that we're told to go into the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them whatsoever things I have taught you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And so Jesus gave us this challenge to go out and make disciples. Okay, so, masters of the house, how well... Are you keeping up with the task that you've been given? Dads, you've been given a command to, to train up your children in the nurture and admonition of the, the Lord. How well are you keeping up with the task with your master that the master has given you? Husbands and wives, you are supposed to be emulating Jesus Christ and the church to the world. So that when the world looks at you, they see a physical illustration of what Christ and the church should look like. Husbands, wives, how are you doing with the task that the master has placed before you? Blessed is he whom the master finds so doing when he, when he comes. Do you get it? I mean, we act like Jesus isn't coming back in our lifetime. We say, oh, I believe he's coming back in my lifetime, but then we live otherwise. Jesus said, don't worry about the time and the season. Don't worry about when it's going to come. Because if honestly, if I told you that Jesus was coming back on July 29th, 19... Or no, sorry, we're already past 19. <laughs> we missed it. That would have been Jehovah Witness. Uh, 2013, okay? So that gives us a, a little over a year. So July, what did I say? July 19th? 29th. July 29th. Oh, you got it marked down. Good. All right. July... <laughs> This was a moment of the Holy Spirit. I have no idea why I said that, but anyway, so mark it down. Anyways, July 29th, 2013, okay? And so, if, if in the Bible, he would have said that, that at some point, man is going to change the, the chronometric uh, form of, of time, and it's going to be some pope in the future by the name of Gregory, and all of a sudden, you're going to go with this other calendar system, and when that occurs, I'm going to come on the 29th day of the 7th month of the, of the 2013th year of their chronometric system. Okay? However, in case you know it would be worded some prophetic way like that, right? And we'd be able to discern it. If you knew that, and if people knew that, what would people do? They would eat, drink, and be merry until July 28th, 2013. And then they would try to get ready. True? Well, you don't know the time, and you don't know the season. So what are we supposed to do in the meantime? From the time that Jesus ascended to the time that Jesus returns, what are we supposed to do? Commence operation. And faithfully continue in the operation. We're supposed to continue to do the things which he has taught us to do. That's why when we go out and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, we're supposed to then secondly do what? Teach them whatsoever things that I have taught you. Do you understand? That's why in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, it said, Paul tells Timothy, and you go find faithful men whom you will be able to instruct such that they also then will do what? Instruct all those others. In other words, find guys that you can disciple who are faithful to go out and disciple others, who will find guys to disciple that will disciple others 
finding guys to disciple who will disciple others. And that's how the church is supposed to continue to grow. So, so what are you doing? How are you doing at, at fulfilling that task? Well, there's the positive side as well of this. And that is Jesus said positively to the, his disciples. He said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be witnesses unto me. Now, if you don't mind, and even if you do, we're going to actually do the second one of those, those challenges positively first. We're going to look at, let's look at, you shall be witnesses. Because before we understand that you shall receive power, we need to understand the, who the you are, right? I think a lot of times we, we read things, and we just decide that therefore, for me whether they're for me or not, and we take things out of context. And so I think it's important for us to, first of all, look at Acts 1.8 and to f- decide when we say, and you shall be witnesses, to decide who the uh, you are. You know, is it, are we supposed to be witnesses? I mean, I just said that we should be witnessing, but that comes from Matthew, right? Not necessarily from Acts chapter 1. So first of all, let's look at the witnesses. Maybe. There we go. The meaning. The meaning of you shall be witnesses. Well, specifically, here in Acts 1... In the you, you shall be witnesses. Who is Jesus talking to? The apostles. Ah, the disciples, the followers. It's not. He is specifically talking to the eleven. He's specifically talking to the twelve minus Judas to the eleven. You say, how do I know that? Well, because the word of God is very clear at letting me know that. Turn to Luke 24. Remember I said we'd be going there. But in Luke 24, now understand that the author of the book of Luke was who? Luke, good. And the author of the book of Acts was? Luke, okay? So the book of Acts is a continuation of his first writing, and that's where we start off in verse 1. He says, of the things I I told you before, O Theophilus, here's here's the continuation of it. But in Luke 24, look at verse 48, Jesus says to these apostles that he's meeting with in this night, okay? He says in verse 48, and you are... Witnesses of these things. What things? Well, he says in verse 46, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And you, specifically, are witnesses of these things. Okay? Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. We'll talk about that in a moment. Okay? Well, turn with me now to Acts chapter 1, back there again. And now let's drop down in Acts 1, down to verse 22. Keeping the context here. And so Jesus is resurrected, or is ascended from them, okay? And they go back to Jerusalem, and they, they spend time together. But in verse 22, we're going to start at verse 21 for context, okay? It says, therefore, Peter's talking, okay? And he says, therefore, of these men who have accompanied us of all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. Jesus specifically was talking to the 11 apostles, and he said, you 11, specifically, you're my inner group, and you are going to be my my witnesses. You are going to be the official witnesses of of what I have done. Peter says, well, we've lost Judas, so therefore we need what? We need a 12. We need a, another official witness. Get it? Okay? And so let's go on. Go to chapter 2. Chapter 2. Peter now in chapter 2, this is a Pentecost thing, and Peter's preaching to them. In, in the middle of his preaching, verse 32, chapter 2, verse 32, it says, This Jesus God has raised up, of which we all are witnesses. Now, who's talking? Peter. But Peter, and who is Peter talking on behalf of? The 120 who were meeting in the upper room? The 12. The 11. But, but add Matthias now. And I would debate whether Matthias was the 12th or Paul was the 12th. And it doesn't really matter, I guess, at this moment. But on behalf of the apostles, when the Holy Spirit came upon them in Acts chapter 2, okay, and, and, and they went out and they began to proclaim with other tongues, those of the Bithynians and Cappadocians and Mythians and, and, um, and those from Pontus and so on and so forth, it was the 12 
who were proclaiming the message. And that Peter then says, and that we are then the witnesses of these things. Turn with me to to chapter 3, verse 15. Verse 11, I'll start so you have the context. It says, Now as the lame man who was healed held on to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them, which is called the porch, which is called Solomon's, greatly amazed. So when Peter saw it, he responded to the people, Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this thing? Or why do you look so intently at us as though by our own power of godliness we had made this man walk? And so he continues on. Okay, In verse 15 he says, uh, verse 14 is, You denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murder to be granted to you, and you killed the Prince of Life, whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. Okay, And we could go to, to others there. Um, you have them on your sermon note sheet, 532, 1039, and verse 41, and chapter 13, verse 31. That the, the initial 12 were the witnesses. Okay? They were the ones who were the specific official witnesses of the birth, the life, the baptism, um, and death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. Okay? And so they specifically are the ones that Jesus is talking to. You are going to be my witnesses. Well, technically speaking, we need to understand what the word witnesses means. Well, it's the word us, and we get our word what from there? Does anybody know? Martyr, okay, and we understand that a, then that a witness is is a official legal term, judicial term of one who basically declares what he or she knows. Does that make sense? I mean, when you're called into the court, you're called to give an account of what you saw or what you know, what you witnessed, what did you see, what did you hear. What do you know occurred at that moment? Not what you're conjecturing, not what you think might have occurred, what by faith you believe. I want to know what you saw. And so Jesus said to Thomas, you believe because you have seen me. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. And so he draws a distinction, Jesus draws a distinction between that which is accepted based upon the testimony of somebody else and that which is accepted based upon their own observation. Make sense? So this witness is one who has observed something through their senses, and now they're declaring what they know as factual. Not what they have been taught, not what they have heard, but what they themselves have experienced, and they can give testimony of. Does that make sense? Now, so technically speaking then, as we look at that, um, you can look at these other verses that are in... in that I put in your sermon note sheet so you can do further study on, but Paul was called to be a witness. But he himself never referred to himself as one of those original 12 witnesses. He gave witness to what he experienced on the road to Damascus. That's what he always said, and that's what I'm bearing witness of. I'm bearing witness of my interaction with with Christ. Okay, Stephen um, was called to be a witness as well to declare what he knew. And he died for being a witness. He was a martyr. Okay? In Matthew 18, 16, 2 Corinthians 13, 1, 1 Timothy 5, 19, we're told that we're not supposed to do anything judicially without, without the presence of two or three witnesses. You get it? So that's what this term actually means. This, this term is a, is a judicial term. Now, so, so taking all that into, into play, specifically, Jesus is talking to the twelve. But technically, this is what the term means. So, applicationally, what can we say? Ah, we went backwards. Applicationally, what can we say? That's specifically, but applicationally then, if you are, technically the term means that you're supposed to be declaring that which you have, have experienced and what you know to be true about Jesus Christ, okay, then how does that apply to you and me? You're responsible to communicate to others your experience. What have you experienced in your life? Now, were you there the day that Jesus was risen, was, was, was raised up on the cross? No. You cannot give eyewitness testimony of that. Were you there the day when, when, the, when the woman went to the, to, the, um, to the tomb and saw the, the, the stone rolled away and saw the angel sitting on top of it and saw the, 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 the soldiers like dead men laying there? No, you didn't know. You don't know that. Like I said, Jesus said to, to Thomas, you believe me because you have seen me, but yet blessed are those who be- have not seen and yet they what? They believe. So 
really, honestly, you believe based on faith. Faith that the testimony that others have given is what? True. Uh, we don't need to go into the certain different storylines from the last week or two, but there are clearly, if you open up the newspaper, there are numerous of those storylines that you can look at that the newspaper is trying to get you to believe what they believe. Does that make sense? And so they're going to quote certain people who they believe are what? Reliable witnesses. Okay? That's, they agree with them. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And isn't that how a real court case really comes out? I mean, you got the defense, defense lawyer comes in and knows his, not always here, okay, but who knows that his, his client is what? Guilty as anything. And yet his job is to come in and make the jury what? Question it. And, 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 and let them go because they're not sure. I always, I hate that, you know? I, I, I would never want to be a lawyer. A trial lawyer like that. And, and I couldn't represent a guy. I mean, and yet you have to. It's like, this is nuts. I, I cannot represent you. you know, you're guilty as the day is long. And, and, and I'm not going to go in there and try to make you seem like you're, you're innocent. If they weren't there, they go in there. And yeah, so you go into the court and you hear all the eyewitnesses. They, they have all the eyewitness accounts. They get all the data. And so the evidence. And so they, ha- they can make their own assessments. But you get what I'm saying. And so, you know... We are only responsible, so now you're called into the witness stand. They're not going to ask you, were you there the day when Jesus came out of the tomb? The answer is what? No. I mean, it's the same thing with evolution, right? Were you there when the, when the gases exploded? You know, were you there when, when, the, when, the, when the DNA and the protein decided to get together and make the first living cell? No. Well, honestly, anybody who believes in evolution has the same basis for their faith that you have. It's a faith thing. It's by belief. They weren't there. They have no evidence of it. Neither do you. You weren't there the day that Jesus, or Jesus, that's true, by the Holy Spirit and God the Father created heavens and earth, were you? No. We, we believe we have an eyewitness account, though, right? That God gave through Moses to us. But still, that's still conjecture. What do you know? Friend, what he did for you. That's exactly right. I know what Jesus did for me. And how many times did I share it? I was laying on my bed that night, and my heart was ready to burst. I knew that at that moment, if I died, I was going to hell. I knew it. I'd been reading the Word. I understood what the Word said about my sin, and that I, if I could not live... I'm a Romans 2 guy here, you know? I mean, and God used his law in my life, and I knew that if I could not live to my own standard, there's no way that I was ever going to live to God's standard. And I realized at that moment, God brought it to bear in my heart, that if he was squeezing my heart, and I was ready to burst, and if I did, I was going to die and go to hell. And I rolled out of my bed, crying my eyes out, and got over to to my den, and sat in my papa's on chair, you know, that, you know, those big papathon chairs on, you know, we don't have them anymore. Anyways, but I crossed my legs, you know, I sat in this little papathon. I didn't know I was supposed to get on my hands and knees and, 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 and say a certain words. I just cried out. A guy said, God, if you can say this wicked soul, I'm yours. In a peace which passes understanding, grabbed a hold of my heart. I can't prove it based upon any definable things that day all I can do is tell you my experience and I can tell you things that are visible between how I used to live my life and how I live my life now I shared this yesterday morning at the the men's breakfast we had a little girl at CEF this week who came back and uh, she was a first grader and and, and I asked the kids, you know, why did you come back? What do you, what do you, you know, what do you want to, to talk about? What, what do you want to know? And, uh, and this little girl, I mean, I had a bunch of kindergartners who just wanted to talk about God and me. Well, me, you. I want to talk about God and you, you know. And, okay. So, anyways, but this one little girl, she says, I'm still struggling with sin. First grader. What do you want to talk about? I'm still struggling with sin. And so I, I knew her name, and I knew that she had just accepted Christ two, three weeks ago. And, and so I said to her name, and I don't want to say it here, um, being on tape and stuff, and I said, didn't you just ask Jesus into your heart just like two or three weeks ago? She says, yes, I did, but I'm still struggling with sin. 
Yeah, I'm thinking, yeah, yeah, wow. I mean, I wish I had adults coming up to me saying that. Wow, I'm struggling, struggling. You know, I had someone years ago come to me for counseling and say, I'm, I'm struggling with sin. And I said, praise God. And they looked at me, huh? And I said, man, too many people are just giving over to it. I'm glad you're struggling. And, um, and so I was able to encourage her, you know, with, with how God works in our heart and how he, he disciples us and how he continues to conform us to his image and stuff like that. And I told her, I said, now, here's something I want to let you know before you leave. I said, you know, this is really exciting, though, that you're, that you're struggling. She looked at me and I said, a couple weeks ago, before you asked Jesus into your heart, did it bother you at all that you were sinning? And you could see her think, six years old, six, seven years old, whatever, she's first grader. You could see her just think for a moment. She said, no. I said, but it does now, doesn't it? She said, yes. And I said, see, that's exciting. That tells me that you really got saved. You know? Because you didn't care before, but now you care. And so now, here's, you know, can you read yet? Yes, I can read. I said, then start spending some time in the Bible. There's going to be some areas that you can't read that are harder than others. You get those wonder books that we're giving you. Go through the wonder books. Spend time studying God's Word. Memorize the mem- verses that we memorize. Memorize those verses. God will use those verses to help you so that you don't sin against Him. That's what we said in Psalm 119. It says, Your word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. Pretty childlike stuff, isn't it? Okay? That we as adults need to hear. Okay? Now the six or seventh, six or seven year old got it. And, uh, so anyways, applicationally, it comes back to us. What do I tell people? I tell people what I, what I experienced, what I know. And then that gives testimony to the rest of this specific witness that the others gave and that I read and that I accept by faith as being true because it has been true in my experience. Do you understand? How many of you have ever studied gravity? Sure you have. Everyone ever studied gravity sometime, right? Okay. But honestly, why do you believe gravity? Because you read about it in a book? Or because you threw a ball up and it came back down? Or because you were working on the roof and you stepped too far to the side? Or because you were up in a tree stand, right, Greg? And, 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 and all of a sudden the, the bottom part slips. You know, and whoops, and, you know, Tom, we talked about that, right? <laughs> All of a sudden it's gone. And we understand what? Gravity, because of our experience. And what our experience does is do what? It supports, it confirms the witness that others have given to us. Do, do you understand? I mean, that's the whole part of science, isn't it? Doesn't, isn't science experiential? I mean, yes. Okay, good. We have a biology major saying yes, anyway. And, and, and that... Because I use experiments to experience what I believe to be true. Do you get it? That's us. That's who you and I are. We're the ones who confirm that everything they said is true because of what God has done in your life. And so like when Peter and John were standing before the Sanhedrin, and they looked at these guys, and they, they, what they saw was that these were untaught unschooled individuals. These were rough-necked fishermen. They were blue-collar workers. And the only thing that they could say about these guys is they, they had been with Jesus. And three years with Jesus transformed their lives. Now what about you? You're called to the witness stand. And, and people look at you. Can they discredit your witness? Can they discredit your testimony? Oh, here's what Jesus did in my life. Yeah, well, if, that's what, if, if this is what everything i got to go on, then your Jesus is pretty powerless. He's pretty impotent. But if Jesus is who Jesus declares himself to be, then what should happen in the life of somebody who gives their life to Jesus? It should change. Why? Because... Uh, the mission. We'll come back because you shall receive power. We'll come back to that one, okay? That's why I wanted to save that one for later. But the, the, uh, the message is that which was given. The mission, okay? What's the mission, the mission field that we're given? Well, we're told Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost part of the world. Now, that wasn't to us. That was to the 12. Do you get it? And specifically, that was borne out by who? No. Not just Paul. No, actually, remember, Paul wasn't one of those 12. Who fulfilled that? Peter. Peter. 
No. No, I understand, but wait, wait. But you're going further. Don't worry about that. Think about it from the Jews' perspective here, okay? Who was it that witnessed in Jerusalem? Peter. Okay? When, and in Judea, okay? And then when Philip went to Samaria, okay? And, and people were starting to believe, and testimony of it came to Jerusalem, who did they send to Samaria to check it out? Peter. And when Peter got there, he's the guy who laid the hands on him so they could receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, right? And so who was with Peter at the time that he went to Samaria? John and other Jews. And so now we've got to go to the othermost part of the world. Well, when do we read about Peter confirming the fact that God had spread the gospel to the uttermost part of the world? Cornelius. That's exactly right. Who was it specifically that the angel came to Cornelius and said to go send for? He didn't say go send for Paul. He said go send for Peter. And Peter took with him a bunch of Jews... And Peter's first comment to Cornelius in Acts chapter 10 was, You know it's wrong for me to be in your house. I'm not allowed to be here. You're unkosher. You're not clean. I can't be in your house. But God just told me that what he called clean, I shouldn't call unclean. So why am I here? <laughs> so, so I'm here. I'm, you know, very clearly, God just told me, you know, I'm sending some guys to you. They're going to be unclean. You've got to go with them because I'm calling them clean. What is it? He says, well, I don't know. God just said, I'm supposed to send for you. And whatever message that you have for me is the message I need to hear. Wouldn't it be an awesome moment? I mean, talk about a blank check, you know? And so Peter begins to tell him about fishing. No! He didn't tell him about fishing. What was the most important message you declare? Jesus Christ. And while he begins to declare Jesus Christ, what happens? The Holy Spirit comes upon him. And Peter says, how can we withhold baptism from these guys, water from these guys, who have ex- experienced the same pouring out of the Spirit that we did at Pentecost. I think Cornelius started to glorify God in an unknown tongue. Unknown to him. Make sense? Okay? And, or in a foreign language. And so that gave testimony to the Jews who were with him that God was really opening up the gospel to the, the Gentiles. So you had Jerusalem... In Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost part of the world. What's really exciting, though, um, this is kind of a side as well. This is free, just kind of thrown in. In Acts 1.8, Jesus tells them to do this. Tells the 12, I want you to do this. But they got really comfortable in Jerusalem. They enjoyed Jerusalem. We enjoy our little our church together. And we want it to grow a little bit. But, you know, but we want it to grow in the way that we want it to grow. And, you know, we just want to be comfortable in it. But God didn't tell us to get comfortable here. God told us to do what? Go! go. They got a little comfy there in Jerusalem and Judea, and so you know what God did for them? He sent persecution. You go from Acts 1.8 to Acts 8.1, just kind of inverted here, okay, and I think, sometimes I think there's no mistakes in God's word when he does things like this, you know, and uh, I like numerology and numbers on math, okay? Anyway, so you go from Acts 1.8 to Acts 8.1, and here he tells them to go, they don't go, so in Acts 8.1 he says, alright, if you're going to do it, I'm going to do it for you, and he sends a persecution to them. By the hands of Paul. Who, well, Saul, who's going to become Paul, right? That was right after Stephen, the stoning of Stephen. And so this persecution comes, and they do what? They, they scatter. And they go, and they begin to take the message to the uttermost parts of the world. I often ask myself, what is it going to take for God to do to get his people his true believers in America who are sitting fat, dumb, and happy and enjoying their little complacent lives to get off off their duffs and do what he wants them to do. To be faithful, bold witnesses of what he has done for them in their lives. But we're so, we, we're, we're, we enjoy life so much. You know, those people who are dying around the world for the name of Jesus Christ, they get it. Because they don't know if today or tomorrow is going to be their last day because of the name of Jesus Christ. And so if today's your last day, then you really don't care about the things of this world, do you? I mean, who cares about the football game today? Who cares about X, Y, or Z? Like you shared, Don, earlier about the man who passed away. His life's eternal. And he's continuing to live right now, either in the presence or not in the presence of the Holy God. 
And that's what our call is. So, geographically, but it's also then, I want you to take this and apply it culturally. What does it mean? Well, to the Jew, it was those who were like them. Judea, Jerusalem and Judea were those who were like them. They were Hebrews. But then who were the Samaritans? They were the half-breeds. They were almost like them. They had some of the teachings. They just didn't what? Apply them. And so we could almost accept them a little bit. We ignore But who are the animals part of the world? They're the goyim. They're the, they're the Gentile dogs that we don't want anything to do with. So, undoubtedly, you all are Jewish in some manner, in that same way, and that you have a little grouping of people that you like to be about. Friend? They were also the reason the Jews were in the situation they were because of the Gentiles. The, the situation... They were disenfranchised from their own country. But, right, they're disenfranchised from their own country. But that, that goes on to, to even beyond that. And so we, we do that a lot. We like to hang out with people that, we, that are like us. Make sense? It's very what? It's very comfortable. So whether it's our family whether it's our friends, but then you can take the next step out, and there are people who are potentially morally righteous and stuff like that, who are similar to us, and we can kind of, they're kind of palatable to us, but then there are those who have, and, and this is Bob's thing, and you know, who have the, the, the studs coming out the nose and the lips and the belly buttons and the, the, the ears all over the place and the sides of their mouth and their heads and, you know, you know, anyways, and I'm not picking on those people, but that's, Bob's, Bob struggles when, when, when he sees guys with, with body art all over them. I, that's what they call it. I, I just call it the facing, you know, God's creation, but, but they, 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 it's art to them and they, they think that they are actually beautifying what God has done for them, okay? We just have a different opinion of it. But I look at it and I go, oh, you know, and so they, you know, they got the studs coming out here and there and they got the, the, the stuff all over their arms and their pants are hanging way down below and, and I go, and I don't want to do anything, have anything to, to do with them. That's my uttermost part of the world. I mean, in any, the further, the only other most part it gets is to the Wiccans and to the, the Anton LaVey's who are the, the Satanists, you know, that I really were repulsed by, okay? But you have those people in your life. You have the Jerusalems, you have the Samarias, and you have the uttermost parts of the world. And God has called you to go beyond your cultural stigmas to those who need to hear about him. Because people need the Lord. Isn't that something? And that's what God has called us to do. Now, we go from then his um, being witnesses to having the power. And Jesus told us, and you shall, not you might, I hope it happens, but you shall receive power when what? The Holy Spirit comes upon you. In Ephesians chapter 1, we're told that after we believe... After we accept the gospel, the truth of the gospel, what happens to us? We receive the, the Holy Spirit. And we're sealed by the Holy Spirit to the day of redemption. You have the same Holy Spirit living in you that Paul had, and that I have, and that um, Spurgeon, Charles Haddon Spurgeon has. Do you understand? It's the Holy Spirit who, were, who has been promised to speak through us. That when we open our mouth and witness, we shouldn't worry about what we're going to say in that day, because the Holy Spirit will speak through us. Our job is to do what? Open our mouth. mouth. But to read and to study, to show ourselves approved unto God, a workman who needs not to be ashamed, but rightly dividing the word of truth, so that when the day comes, we are ready to give an answer for the hope that's within us, and that I open my mouth, the Holy Spirit takes over, He takes the word, which I've been reading and studying and memorizing, and He brings it right out and He gives it to the people. And so, John, like you said, so I pray before the, the Jehovah Witnesses come over and say, Lord... Help me to have the wisdom to know to say what you want me to say. Does it make sense? I mean, I don't know in this moment when I, so this LDS woman that I got to, to, to witness to this week, I don't know in what step I am of witnessing to her. I know that she takes one of her children to a Baptist daycare. Praise God, huh? And so, so I don't know where I am in all that process of tilling soil and sowing seed. I just pray, Lord, guide the conversation to, to, to go where you want me to go with this. And then I'm going to do what? Try to be faithful to proclaim 
what I what I know. This is what the Word of God says. This is my experience in life. This is what I know to be true. And then I move forward. And I trust that the power of the Holy Spirit is going to embolden me to do His case, to do His work. Well, what's the departure of Christ? Well, very simply, there's two sides to this. In this the ascension of Christ, when Jesus is being taken up, the, the, uh, the angels come, and the angels, um, they come and they begin to speak to them with this... Um, Jesus is done speaking to the disciples, and we're told that he is he's taken up into the cloud. And while they're all they're looking at him, right? While he was while they're watching, he's taken up. Well, we're told that the disciples they look at it and they were filled with what wonder, amazement. I mean, when's the last time you were watching and somebody without strings that was attached to something above, you know, start levitating and continue to levitate and continue to levitate into the clouds and go and out of your sight. It hasn't happened, has it? Wouldn't you be filled with wonder and amazement if it happened? I would be. That would be a pretty incredible thing. And so they were filled with this wonder. As you kind of see the picture there, they're kind of looking up like, whoa, what's going on? This is pretty cool stuff. Well, wonder, being filled with wonder at God always leads to worship. And so what do we see as they go back to the city of Jerusalem? They go back to Jerusalem with what? Worshiping God. And I want to ask you just very simply, are you filled with amazement at the work of God? I mean, do you consider what Jesus Christ has done for you? And what God has done in this world? And are you filled with wonder? If you are, you came this morning with the desire to worship God corporately. But if it's been ho-hum, and this is just a matter of, this is Sunday morning, and so this is what I do on Sunday morning, you just showed up because it was what you're supposed to do on Sunday morning. You really actively didn't come to worship God. You came just to punch a ticket. But those who are filled with wonder and amazement at God, and Jesus Christ and what he has done, will be filled with worship. It was cool this week. I was making return at Home Depot, and, and I asked the lady how she was. She said she's doing great. And she says, how are you? And I said, what? What well, how I always answer? It's well with my soul. And, and she said, it is well. It was awesome. And I said, with my soul. And the lady next to her said, oh, here we go. <laughs> and we sat and stood there in Home Depot and saying, it is well with my soul. Isn't that cool stuff? You know? But, you know, if you're filled with the joy of the Holy Ghost and, and, and you're filled with wonder at who God is and what he's doing, that's easy to break out into. With worship of God, even in Home Depot. No matter where you're at, you should be filled with the amazement and wonder of God. And it should always spring out in worship, no matter where you're at. I want to challenge you with that. Please, 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 if you're living whole hum, humdrum lives before God, repent, change the way you think. Start focusing on who God is again and what he's done for you, and be filled with amazement and wonder, and then ultimately with worship before him. Well, that was the reaction of the disciples. And so then finally you have the assertion of the angels. And the first thing they, they um, asserted and they assured them of is that Christ was going to what? Go go to heaven. Okay? Four times in verses 10 and 11, four times we're told that Christ was going into heaven. Now, in just a brief amount of time, you had an angel telling you that you know, Christ is going to heaven. What do you think they want you to know? Christ is going to heaven. He's, yeah, he's, he's still alive, but he's there with the Father. He is in heaven. This isn't a charade. This isn't, this isn't you know, something that's a hocus-pocus hallucination thing. Jesus is still alive, but now he's ascended into heaven. Because Jesus promised him that he was going to do that. And when he went, he was going to be a what? He was going to intercede on their behalf. He's there now, guys. He's in heaven for you. Well, not only that, but he's also going to what? He's going to return. He's going to come back. And what they tell him is, in the word there, when it says in the same manner, it means way. It means the, the same way, the same pattern, in the same manner, then, in which he was taken up, he's going to what? He's going to come back. Okay, class, this is pretty simple. What manner, way, path, pattern was Jesus taken up? He was on the Mount of Olives. He was in Jerusalem, right? And he was taken up in a... Cloud. That's pretty simple. I don't, I don't know how you can... I don't see any Roman um, chariots there. I don't see any Roman horses. I don't see any, any uh, 
hoof beast, and some of you are wondering what that, that's amillennialism. Those who believe in amillennialism, that's what they believe. They believe that Jesus did come back in the clouds of the, 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 the Roman horse hoof beats. You know, that when they were running and they were coming and they were destroying Jerusalem and the clouds were coming, that Jesus actually came in those clouds. Yeah, you're right, Mark, huh? Yeah. And they believe that. I mean, I remember the first time I got someone to show me that, that I thought it was coming from some cult, and I realized, no, no, this is actually amillennialism, and there are many mainline denominations that believe this. Weird stuff. I think pretty clearly, but I'm a literalist, so maybe I'm wrong on this one, that literally the angels were saying that he went in this manner, that I should believe what? He's going to come back in this manner. In fact, that's what Paul declares in Thessalonians, right? And that's exactly what I see in the book of Revelation. Kind of makes sense to me. Anyways, I may be too much of a literalist. So, as I look at those things, this is what it's all about. So, my questions to you in IR, how faithfully are you serving the Lord? Are you a faithful witness? Are you faithfully declaring to others what you know, what you've experienced, and what you can testify then is true based upon your experience? Are you filled with wonder and worship at the redemptive work and power of Jesus Christ in your life? If not, again, you need to repent. And finally, are you filled with the Holy Spirit and with power? Listen, if you're filled with the Holy Spirit and power, it's going to be evidenced in your life. Is it being evidenced in your life or not? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness to us. I thank you for your word. It's quick, it's powerful, and it's sharper than a twisted sword. And Lord, I thank you that you desire for us to be ambassadors. You desire for us to be witnesses of your redemptive work in this land. Lord, I pray that you would help us to to be filled with boldness and power by your Holy Spirit, that, Lord, we would would be faithful, Lord, and that we would see uh, fruit coming from the proclamation of your word. Lord, I pray that as we go um, door to door at times, Lord, that it would not just be a a program of the church, but, Lord, it would be an opportunity for us to distribute the the good news of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray, though, that it would not just become a, a program that we do for one hour on every other Sunday, but, Lord, that it would become that which becomes indicative of our lives, that that we are prepared, we are ready to give an answer for the hope that's within us at all times. And, Lord, that we are praying for opportunities. We are praying for, for you, the Lord of the harvest, to send workers into your field. And, Lord, that we're willing to be those workers that you're sending forth into the field. Help us to be faithful, to go with the sickle, as it were, to, to, to seek the harvest. Lord, help us to go and to, with the water and to... to, to to water the, the seeds that have been sown, to, to throw the seeds, to fertilize the seed, to till the soil, whatever it is that you have us to do in these fields, Lord, and that we would give you the glory. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.